welcome to the Irish Memory Box. The Irish Memory Box is a new way for Irish people of different generations to communicate and learn from each other. Today, I will be talking to Larry Kerwin. I'm Sarah. I am actually an intern at Irish Community Services for the summer. Um, I am also in university. I'm doing a master's in social work next year. So, Larry, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Larry Kerwin. Uh, I was the leader of Black 47 for 25 years and I got out alive. It's my main distinction in life. I'm also a playwright um, and I'm a, a novelist, a political activist and uh, yeah, I guess that's it. I'm from Ireland originally, but I live in New York City now. Right, so that was the first question. What is your connection to Ireland? Well, uh, I was born in a place called Wexford in the southeast corner. Most people don't go there because most people go to the west, but uh, Wexford is a very historic spot. And, um, and then I decided to come to New York on an adventure and see could I survive here for one thing? So I only came with a hundred bucks. And uh, could I make um, a life, you know, playing music and uh, writing or whatever as I was gonna do. And I uh, came at the age of 21 and I was illegal for about three years. And I finally got my status clarified and I went back and by that time, it was kind of too late. I had lived on the Lower East Side of New York. Um, punk was starting at the time. CBGBs was happening. And it was just a, a wild scene. And I just didn't fit back in Wexford anymore, much as I loved it and still love it. But uh, I was just, I guess I, I was just too much of the, had too much of the New York streets in me by that point to, to make a happy life back there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you tell us about your experience in Black 47? Well, I wrote a book about it at one point <laughs> because it was just a wild experience. I'd been in other bands and um, I had a, a record deal in the 80s with a new wave band called Major Thinkers. And we toured a lot with Cindy Lauper and people like that. Yeah. Cindy was a, a great friend. And uh, then when we got dropped by the label, I uh, decided to become a playwright. So I gave up music totally and went full time into the theater. And then I had a, a kind of a, a hit uh, almost instantly with with a play about the Beatles, if the Beatles hadn't made it called Liverpool Fantasy. And I went from one play to the other, but um, I began to miss the stage because I had been a you know, professional musician most of my life. And uh, one day I decided I hadn't heard an Irish accent in a long time either, because I was living on the Lower East Side and uh, uh, there's no Irish people there at that point. And I decided I want to hear some Irish voices. And I decided to walk up to this bar, which is about 60 blocks away. And I thought, 
that'll sort me out. But on the way, I heard music coming from another Irish bar called Paddy Riley's. And I went in there and it was a band playing. And uh, I hadn't played any music in about four years. And they asked me to get up on stage with them. And I didn't want to, but the bartender gave me a shot of whiskey and I thought, eh, I'll have a go at it. And I got up on stage and I played all night and had a great time. And at the end of the night, I was sitting with the leader of the band and he said, well, the band I'm in tonight is breaking up and we have all these gigs to do up in the Bronx. And I got no one to do them with. And this is about four in the morning. I said, I'll do them with you, man. And he said, really? I said, yeah. And I said, the only thing is we have to play original music. And this was the, the band he was in was, you know, kind of a covers band. And um, so he said, well, what do you want to call the band? And I said, let's call it Black 47, because that was the year of the great uh, potato famine on Goethe Moore. And I wanted the band to be political. And the guy I was with talking to, Chris Byrne, was totally political too. And then we headed up to the Bronx and everyone hated us. <laughs> and we got fired from place to place. And, but eventually we were getting a little bit better all the time. And I was writing more and more songs and Chris was writing some songs too. And then after about four or five months, we started to attract a crowd and we moved to a place in Manhattan called Patty Riley's. And the songs, because I've been doing playwriting, had changed from the songs I'd written before. They were all kind of story songs with strong characters. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of Black 47. And uh, within a year, there were lines around the block and kind of went from strength to strength for 25 years. Ups and downs, of course. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's really cool. Um, what instruments do you play? Uh, I play guitar. And I was a singer in the band. Chris Byrne was an Illin pipe player. So we were a strange wow. band right from the start. You know, there was a, a guy on an electric guitar and a drum machine, you know, playing driving music. And, uh, and Chris, as it turned out, was a Brooklyn rapper also, even though he was playing the Illin pipes and he was a cop, he was a detective sergeant. So we were kind of a strange band, right? From <laughs> yeah. The did go, yeah. And, but it was, it was a real original sound. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, you've also written books and plays, as you mentioned before. Um, so what is your inspiration for them? Oh, God. Well, I write plays, I write novels, I wrote a history of Irish music. And of course, I've written a lot of songs, but they all come from the same source. You know, um, the idea has to be right. You know, getting the idea right. So originally I was a songwriter. And as I said, my style of songwriting changed in the four years 
that I, uh, I became a playwright. So sometimes I write about history, Irish history or American history. And with Black 47, I did a lot about New York. I had this feeling that uh, to try and be something like Lou Reed or the Ramones, but because they were very New York bands, but to do something, uh, you know, lyrical about New York and try and capture New York in song. So I suppose in, um, in the plays I've written um, and in the books I've written, there's been something to do with New York or history or music <clears throat> and most of all politics. We were really political right from the start. We believed in total civil rights in the north of Ireland and uh, total civil rights for every person and including gay people, which uh, didn't go down well back in, <clears throat> in Irish circles at that point. And I did a song called Danny Boy, but I changed Danny Boy into um, a gay Irish construction worker who would kick your butt. And uh, that caused a big stir in Irish communities and <clears throat> in the other communities that didn't. You know, there was a group called Ilgo at the time in New York. That was the Irish lesbian and gay organization. And, we were big supporters of that group and uh, we were controversial and we didn't care. It was like, this is Black 47. You know, if you're taking a name Black 47, it's a big name and it's something big to live up to. And uh, uh, we became really popular with Irish Americans, but also with uh, Americans who were political and basically with anyone who, who liked a good story, I think, in the songs or in the plays, in the uh, novels. I have a new novel out right now. Oh, what called, is that about? Uh, it's, uh, it's called Rockaway Blue. And it's about a family in a place in New York called Rockaway Beach. And there's a father, it's an Irish American family. The father is Detective Sergeant Jimmy Murphy. His wife is Maggie Murphy, who's, she teaches English in school. She teaches in a Catholic school. And they have two sons, Brian, who's kind of a, a rising star, right from the time he was born, he went to the, the best Catholic high school because you get in for nothing if you're very smart. And then he went to Georgetown, was at the head of his class, and then could have been a lawyer or gone to Wall Street, but he becomes a cop. And he passes his father. He becomes a lieutenant at 30. And he's kind of the center of the family. And then there's another son called Kevin, who's not a rising star and gets in trouble. And after a little bit of trouble, he gets into the fire department. But then 9-11 comes and Brian, as 
you would expect becomes a hero. He rescues seven people out of the North Tower, but then he runs back in and as nobody expects, the building falls down and he's killed and the family is shattered by it. And then two years later, uh, as Jimmy is trying to keep the family together because Maggie has had a mental breakdown and uh, but is starting to come back, Jimmy finds out that Brian was actually in the North Tower 30 minutes before the plane struck. So what was he doing there? And it's, it's, a, it's a mystery and yet it deals with all the... Uh, the mechanics of being in a family and it just came out last month so oh, very good. it sounds really good um so you i suppose you kind of do this through a lot of your work but how do you celebrate being irish i don't i just be it you know with black 47 it was just obvious that we were this radical Irish band who took up different causes and uh, had a huge following and were successful. So I didn't really, you know, just by being on stage, I didn't really have to do it. You know, I, I guess I didn't even go to Irish bars at a after a certain point because I was in them so much, traveling the country and... Uh, ending up in them eventually. I mean, we, the band always went to, had a party afterwards and we would go to whatever, uh, we would announce from the stage where we were gonna be that night. Oh. So it, would, it would mean a stampede in the bar. But when I was on my own, uh, I lived downtown Manhattan. So, you know, I go to other type of places. I didn't need to really celebrate it. I guess everybody just knew I was Irish and uh, that was it. Yeah. I mean, I never walked, I never marched in the St. Patrick's Day parade. I didn't in, in New York because uh, they banned gay people or banned gay mm -hmm. people under uh, marching under a banner. So I never did through all those years. And now it's kind of, I never even think of it because you know, I'm usually playing on uh, St. Patrick's Day. You know? yeah. So that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm known for that. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit more about Paradise Square? Yes. Paradise Square has broken my heart many times. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a great concept. Uh, I live, as I said, downtown, and that's very close. I just only about five blocks from an area called the Five Points. And that was the big immigrant area. And my grandfather, I was raised by an old grandfather in Wexford. He used to talk about the Five Points. So when I got to New York, I went there to, and of course it's all gone. It's now the courthouses and it's partly Chinatown, but there were still remnants of it there. And I found out through books that the Irish who went there after Ungurta Moore, the, the potato famine, 
they began to fraternize with the, Afri the free African-Americans who lived there. And part of it was that more Irish women came to the US than Irish men right after, right during the, the famine and mm -hmm. after it. But because the social structure in Ireland broke down totally during the years 1845 to 1850, so many people died, over a million died, and a couple of million emigrated. And um, the structure broke down, the priests couldn't control people anymore because there was huge overpopulation in Ireland. Ireland now I think is around five or five and a half million people and it's, it's built over the years. But at that point, it probably had eight and a half million people. So when these young women came to the US for the first time, nobody was telling them what to do or anything. So they began to frequent the dance halls. It was a dance craze in the US at the time. Everybody showed their steps like, Irish people did their jigs and reels. Uh, black people did their sway and their boogie. And, you know, clog dancing came in from Germany. And that's how people, I guess, communicated in ways because of all these different languages. But the Irish women began to fraternize a big, in a big way with uh, African-American men. And... Many married, and I happened to see uh, a book in a place called the Strand Bookstore, an old book, and it had etchings of the dancers. And it was always an Irish woman with a black man. And there was a, a joy in their faces that really struck me from across, this is, nearly 150 years, just this look of enjoyment between the two peoples. And so I set out to write a play that would incorporate the music of Stephen Foster because I'd grown up listening to his music and I reasoned that the one type of music that these two uh, peoples, these two brutalized peoples, the African-Americans fleeing slavery in the South and the Irish fleeing famine in Ireland. The one thing they would have in common was foster music because it was world popular at the time and the songs were simple and easy for the musicians of both sides to jam on. And I, I used his music and the, the, the couples who got together and eventually married or had children, whichever, were called amalgamationists, the amalgamation of two races. And they were despised by the local people. For one thing, the Irish were Catholics and there was huge anti-Catholicism in New York at that point. And Nobody liked black people either, you know. So now they were thinking we're going to have black Catholics. So that's put it really crudely. But the 
the powers that be didn't like these amalgamations. And during the draft riots of July 13th, 1863, there were riots in the streets and the nativist, that's the, those born in the US and went after the, the amalgamationists and then everybody started fighting. The certain of the Irish went after African-Americans and it was just anarchy for four or five days in New York. This is during the civil war. And there were, there were no troops here because Gettysburg was on at the time. And so I, I set the play for that day, uh, July 13th, 1863, when the draft riot started. And I wanted an African-American woman to be the hero of it. So I came up with a woman called Nellie Blythe and she was the one who everybody looked up to in her bar and dance hall. She was married to an Irish guy who had just gotten killed in the Civil War. And it was how does she hold her bar together? And then this play became a success. It was called Hard Times at that point. A guy called Peter Ladon came to see it and he loved it. And he made a tape of it and sent it to a really famous producer in Toronto called Gart Drabinsky, who had had numerous hits. And Gart sent me a ticket, brought me up to um, Toronto. We made a deal and I began to develop the play up there. It took years of, um, of doing workshops and then we brought it to Berkeley, to Berkeley Rep uh, in 2019, and it became a hit there. And then unfortunately the, um, the pandemic struck. So we got held up for a year or so. And now it's moving to uh, Chicago in November to the Nederlander Theater. And as soon as it's finished there, it'll move back to New York to Broadway. So it's a, a long, long story. That's why I said it's really broken my heart over the yeah. issue. So the next question is not exactly related to Parliament Square. Um, do you miss Ireland at all? Um, well, I go back every year. I think a certain amount goes out of uh, your home when your parents pass away especially when the, the house you grew up in is gone too. You know, you're, you're there and an old guy in the Bronx put it to me one time about immigrants. He said, the problem with you and me is we're neither here nor there. You know, you're, you're part of Ireland, you're part of America. You don't totally fit into either of them anymore. And uh, you just, you're a hybrid, you gotta find your own way of doing things. So I don't really miss the new Ireland. I miss the Ireland I grew up in uh, where I knew everyone 
But yet at the same time, when I go back, you know, I meet people and after a few days, I'm kind of back into it. But I become so attuned to New York that uh, I'd find it very hard to live anywhere else. But I miss my family and uh, I miss the friends I grew up with. And there's a certain part of me that will always be in Ireland anyway. And uh, I miss Wexford itself. It's a, it's a haunting kind of town. You, wouldn't, you mightn't think of it if you go into it, but uh, it's very, very old. And uh, I often feel like I communicate with the ghosts that are better than with the people I'm meeting now, you know, there's, mm. I have a lot of ghosts around <laughs> Wexford, you know, old girlfriends, old friends. And uh, so I always enjoy going back and uh, I'll be going back again in October with a bit of luck. Yeah, so our last question then um, is, do you have any advice or hopes for the Irish American community? I think Ireland's gotten a really raw deal um, and the Irish community, Irish American community is suffering a bit from it in that it's so hard to get into the country now. Um, so you're not getting the fresh blood that was always coming, you know, from the time the country started, you know, there's a cutoff point and I'm pretty in tune with Irish America because I got to travel to, I played in every state in the country. So I obviously played in, at every big Irish festival and everything. So I, be, I being a writer, I began to take uh, mental notes at least, you know, how is someone from the south side of Chicago different than someone from the south side of Boston? You know, each Irish person who emigrates and goes into um, a community uh, takes on a part of that community and kind of makes Ireland a bigger place by doing so. So I would really push Irish Americans to go after President Biden to change the immigration laws and allow more Irish in. It should change them anyway, allow more people in because the, the demographic is getting older and you need younger people coming in all the time uh, to you know, put some juice into the place. So that'd be my mm -hmm. first thing. I do, there's one great thing that Irish Americans are doing now is that um, a lot of college students are going back and doing a semester or two semesters in Ireland. And I think they're showing Irish America what Ireland has become. And Ireland is a much more progressive uh, country now. And it used to be, Ireland used to be the back of beyond, believe me, I had to leave it. It was just so uh, repressive and everything. But now there's a lot that uh, Irish Americans can learn from Ireland in regard to, you know, liberalizing their communities. I was like a lot of Irish people um, 
uh, like every Irish person, when you come for the first couple of years, you're still thinking in terms of Ireland. So you're judging Irish Americans. But then, because I was a musician and traveling, I began to get out into the country and meet Irish Americans of all types and realize just the, the values that Irish Americans have, the very family-oriented and very generous people. So there's, there's just so much uh, that Irish people can learn from Irish Americans because I've always seen Irish as being not just being born in Ireland, but the diaspora is part of being Irish too. And that's really important because back in Ireland, you got 5 million people or whatever it is. All over the world, you probably have 60 to 80 million Irish people. And there's so much to be learned from each community. And uh, both Irish and Irish Americans can learn so much from each other. Yeah. Thank you. That's all my questions, but thanks for answering them. That brings us to the end of this episode. And if you or someone you know would like to take part, please let us know. You can email info at parachicago.org.